Well, hello, all you regenerative agriculture fans out there. Today, I'm talking with Jeremy Leckage, founder of two organizations in Nashville, Tennessee, Compost Nashville and Nashville Foodscapes. He's on a mission to make Nashville full of edible landscaping and diverting waste from the landfill to create rich, life-generating compost in the process. He shares some species-specific tips on how you can start growing beautiful food-producing trees and perennials on your own property. Jeremy also shares both concept and history of Mexico's community Ajito agricultural land, specific rights to enjoy as well as gain profit from members of the community surrounding these zones, and the different concepts of land use and food-bearing plants in public places. He also talks about other cultures' practices around edible landscaping. Truly, we could use some of these ideas here in the United States today. Full of deep thinking and witty quips around why kids might listen to the cool guy with a knife on his belt who says to try eating veggies that they've grown to a face-off between the pawpaw song and the Oscar Mayer wiener jingle. We talk about the war for people's minds and preconceived notions around food, abundance, and the impact that ultimately it has on our culture. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio, raising hair sheep, dairy goats, and a whole lot more. I encourage, educate, and entertain those who long to become regenerative farmsteaders, ranchers, and farmers, and help them launch their own agricultural projects and achieve monetary success. On this podcast, we hear tales from others to help them accelerate their own successful ventures, no matter how big or small, because I believe in a future of interconnected small farms being the backbone of a resilient local food supply chain. Jeremy can carry a decent tune, I've got to say. It was super fun to talk specifics around things like crab apples, cornelian cherries, fusa dogwood, and the American mango-like pawpaw. And now, enjoy the interview. Welcome, Jeremy. Welcome to Fairhill Farmstead Life. Glad to have you. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So for the audience, could you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Jeremy Leckage. Um, I'm a, a Tennessee uh, born and raised, and um, I am currently working um, part-time in two companies that I uh, co-founded and co-own. One is Nashville Foodscapes, uh, and we do edible landscaping, um, ecological landscaping, uh, design, build, maintenance, uh, helping people grow food, grow beauty, uh, gardens, orchards, pollinator gardens, rain gardens, um, food forests. Uh, we've done some small farmsteads uh, and homesteads. And uh, the other company is Compost Nashville. And we do food waste pickup for uh, residential and commercial clients that uh, don't have space to compost or don't want to compost. And we, uh, we pick up their food waste and, and haul it to be turned into compost, diverting it from the landfill. So that's how I spend most of my time. That's pretty cool. Is there some synergy between those two? Sounds like there would be some interplay. Yeah, yeah. You know, there hasn't been as much, but there's starting to be a lot more, which is really exciting. And, and part of that is because I'm now working part-time in both companies, which is which is new for me. So, Were you working double full-time before? <laughs> right. <laughs> Being a founder and all? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I spent most of my working adult life at Natural Foodscapes. Um, 
and uh, haven't spent as much time at Compost Nashville, but now I'm, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm doing part-time at, at both to, to try to, you know, work in both. And, and now it's great. Yeah. Cause there is some synergy that's emerging, which is really sweet. So which, which one do you find more exciting and inspiring? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it depends on the day, <laughs> depends on the day and the issues that we're dealing with. But, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I'll give you, you know, two quick stories about either, you know, uh, Compost Nashville, we are about to hit 10 years in business and 10 million pounds diverted from the landfill, which feels pretty inspiring. So we're about to have a, a party to celebrate 10 years and 10 million pounds diverted. And, you know, the thing about it is we're only servicing probably 0.1% of the population of, of, of Nashville. And, and, and so, you know, 10 million pounds for such a small amount of people just shows you how much more, uh, food is is being thrown into the landfill and how much more opportunity there is to cycle that back, you know, into uh, into our soils. Um, it's it feels very important, you know, I mean, essential, really. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, natural foodscapes, you know, I, I love helping people reconnect with 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 their food and with the land and, you know, with the hummingbirds and butterflies. Um, and so there's there's something you know they're 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 both so different and in compost nashville it's like we offer the same service everyone signs up for the you know you subscribe and you pay your monthly payment and we come pick up your your bin full of food waste you know where nashville foodscapes is so custom every client it's a different site different goals uh different budget and um and so it's there's just such different businesses but both working to um really build a resilient food system um and, and shift culture. That's really cool. There's a lot to talk about there. So w when you're diverting food out of the la the landfill, so you're you're picking it up at people's homes and then you're taking it to your composting facility. Um, we right now we're working with a with a, a facility that that does the composting. Okay. Um, so we're we're really right now the hauler. We we pick it up, congregate it, and then take it to be composted. Oh, that's good. That's good. So talk to me a little bit about the Nashville foodscapes, if you will. Like, can you talk a little bit about what foodscaping is? Because that's sort of a, a mashup that I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because when I started Nashville foodscapes, I really was playing around with what, what kind of name, you know, I should put to it. And, and foodscaping was, was one that I felt like spoke a lot about, well, we're, we're putting edible plants in the landscape, you know. And of course, for a long time, it was like, wait, so is that like edible arrangements? You know, you guys make bouquets of food, you know, I was like, no, not really. You know, it's 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 very different. Um, and now there's a there's I mean, there's a whole group of foodscapers across the country. I was just in a foodscaping conference. So the, the term has really caught on, which is so great. And. Um, but, yeah, you know, I started the business um, in 2010 and it was just me, you know, and I was serving tables making money to try to buy some shovels. And, um, but I was really inspired to, to see a shift in the way that, that people related to their land, especially in suburban areas, right? Because there's so much land in the suburbs and so often it's lawn and, you know, ornamental only landscaping. And it just seemed like such a um, missed opportunity to, to see all this land not 
produce something more than just one function, you know, multiple functions, have it be beautiful and eat it too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like, as I started building the business, I realized this was not a novel idea. You know, it's like this, it's this radical and ancient idea. Um, and I started talking to people all over the, um, or sorry, in Nashville, but from all over the world, you know, and, and uh, for, I was talking to people from every continent, partly because Nashville is a pretty diverse city, which is great. And, and, you know, I would tell, you know, these people from, you know, immigrants from other, from other countries, what I did. And they were like, oh yeah, that's how I grew up. You know, like there was food everywhere, you know, and, and I was in a, one of the parks in Nashville and I was talking to this guy from Greece and he was like, why, why is the trees in this park, not fruit trees, you know? And I was just like, well, yeah, it's culture. I, I, I think it has to do with culture. <laughs> so I, I start to started to really get a sense of how, um, just how different, you know, our, our societal norms um, are here from many places in the world when it comes to food and, and how we relate to land. Um, we, we often don't see that relationship as land is more than just, you know, it's, it's just outside, you know, rather than <laughs> it's the nourishment, it's the sustenance, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. that resonates with me all deeply yes Mm. and what you said about suburbia as well because mostly suburban um developments and everything they're former farmland or forest so we took it out of production and put it into residence and and what are we doing then i mean we're calling chem lawn and we're mowing our lawns and paving it over and Yeah, and you know, that's that was part of the design of the suburban like kind of template was this idea of the pasture, the farm, where you have all these homes, but there's all these like yards connected. And so you can step out and look and it feels like you're on, you know, this large pasture, but it's all these mm-hmm. homes together. It was part of the template of it. And, you know, they just, you know, in this weird kind of transformation, instead of there being animals mowing the grass it became you know mowers and so we got rid of the best parts of the lawn which was being able to have the livestock there and then just like retain the work aspect of it it's kind of this weird you know uh transfiguration that happened but you know as far as i understand suburban kind of the suburban design template was very meant very much meant to mimic the pasture and farm uh kind of sensibilities that's interesting. That makes sense. I mean, you think about little little fences and rolling grasses and yeah, that makes exactly. sense. So why do you think that Americans are not into fruit trees for landscaping? Is it because they're not perfectly shaped or what? What do you think that is? I I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, it's, multiple factors came together, you know, like one, one of the, one history that I learned about that was fascinating was that this idea of not having edible landscaping, like this, let me back up. The idea of ornamental only landscaping came very much from royalty in Europe, especially during medieval times where the, the royalty basically were able to say, you know what, we don't have to grow food because we have so much, wealth that we can just buy it from everybody else. So let's, let's just have 
you know, ornamental landscaping because that signifies our royalty and our wealth, you know? Um, and that idea, unfortunately, I think was like brought here um, with some of the sentiments and, um, and then kind of stuck, you know? And, um, and so I think it was like a mix of that. And then once you had like this idea of people who, um, moved into areas where they weren't growing food. And I think like one generation later, it just got to the point where there was like such a discomfort with growing food. Like, I think it was just like so quickly that it was like, people were able to be like, Oh, well, I don't fruit tree, you know, what, what is, that's going to be, you know, I hear often, Oh, it's going to be messy, you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's going to be messy if you don't harvest like, yeah. <laughs> but like, if you're a harvesting, you know, it shouldn't really be that messy, you know? So I think it just was really um, a pretty quick uneducation, you know, uh, uh, a disconnection that that uh, just really crept into the societal mindset about what it meant to grow food. Um, and, you know, I think the reality, too, is that like in, in, in especially in the South, in this country, like food was grown by enslaved people. So I think there was this idea that like, you know, food was not something that you did. Um, unless you were in that kind of situation, you know, it, it, it was almost like this devaluing and this deculturing of food um, because of that history. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by that, you know, and I and I've seen it with with my own work and my friends who farm and, and how hard it is sometimes to to charge the prices that they want to charge or they need to charge to really make a good living. And I think that part of that is because of that history that, you know, food was was grown by enslaved people rather than, you know, um, it being this thing that was celebrated and, and, and highly valued. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't put those together, but it makes a lot of sense. Huh? So are you seeing a lot of, you said that you went to a conference for foodscapers. Yeah. That's, that's who, that's amazing. That's so exciting. Yeah. You must've been like kid at Christmas. It must've been so fun. It, it was really fun. And, and it's a buddy of mine who started it uh, like three or four years ago. And uh -huh. it's called the foodscaper.com. And, you know, it was all virtual. Um, the hope is to one day be in person. But um, it's yeah, it's so sweet. It's people from all over the country. A lot of them are, are starting their businesses or are pretty young in it. So, you know, I, uh, I sat on a panel of, of people, of veterans that, you know, mm -hmm. have been doing it for a while. So it was, it was fun to be called a veteran. I should you say know. you're a veteran. Yeah. <laughs> you're in early. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, did your time. you did your time. You starve. Now you're going to reap the benefit. That's showing the way to others. That's right. My goodness. Yeah. That is so fun. It, it, is there a lot of these firms around? And it, I mean, is this, is this really catching on? It is. Yeah, it's growing. Um, it's, it really is. Um, I don't know what the number is, but I would I would say that there's, you know, at least 100 probably businesses doing this kind of work of, you know, from having, you know, many employees to having, you know, just the owner working in the company. And um, yeah, it, you know, I, I think partly that's because there's a collective shift, you know, um, there's a there's a cultural shift and and people are saying, you know, hey. If I'm going to invest in my landscaping, I might as well have more of a return on the investment rather than it just be beautiful. And, and I think the idea that like fruit trees and a garden, you know, and herbs, all those that can be beautiful, you know, um, 
that can really stand out in, in the landscape and, and then also offer, you know, food, beauty, medicine. Um, and so there is, there is a cultural shift. And, and I noticed that for us, it, like COVID really, um, because people were home so much, they, they wanted to invest in their yards. Mm. Um, and so we saw a huge shift um, and a huge demand because people were home. And so I think that has helped um, the foodscaping industry in that way. And people saw how fragile the, <laughs> the system was. It was like, oh man, eggs were so expensive and toilet paper was so expensive. And I was like, all right, well, we better, <laughs> we better have some food growing nearby. That's true. That is, that is definitely true. I, I can attest to that directly. There was a huge uptick in farmer's market attendance and CSA participation. I'm sure it was a lot. Well, who's, who's your main client? Is it Joe homeowner or is it companies? Is it community gardens? Is it cities? What, who's, who's your, who's your client these days? Yeah. And have you seen it change through the years? Yeah. I, Yes, in a way, um, you know, for a while, and really still today, our, our main client is is your 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 middle to upper class family um, that that has suburban family that has you know a, a, a yard big enough to run around in and, and have a garden in. Mm-hmm. Um, we have worked with a number of schools. We've worked with a number of community gardens. Um, we've worked with some restaurants to do you know restaurant gardens. Um, and I would say the, you know, really residential still, it's our bread and butter. Um, and, and, you know, so many of our clients, um, are just such wonderful people. Like I, I want to hang out with them, you know, and that's such a a sweet, I think, benefit of doing this kind of work is that we often have such awesome people. I think the thing, the shift that we have seen here in the last, I would say five to six years is we're seeing a lot of people moving here from California, New York, Texas, and you know they're able to sell their home in California and buy a huge piece of land here in Middle Tennessee, or at least they were able to for a while. And so we were getting a lot of, uh, of folks reaching out who had bought you know larger tracts of land, and you know were wanting to to grow food for their friends and family, and you know I. That's great. And it was just pretty amusing because it was like, okay, well, we're going to like till up five acres to grow food for our family of four, you know, and it'd be like, <laughs> uh, try a fifth of an acre at most, you know, and it, it was like, it just was so clear that they were entering into a new uh, almost paradigm. And so there was a lot of like kind of scaling back, you know, for a while it was it was, you know, people kind of had a good sentiment. I think a lot of our clients early on, like either had gardening experience or, or at least had some type of sentiment of what it meant to like grow a garden for their family, where it started to evolve into people who watched some YouTube videos and got excited and then were like, let's do a huge garden, you know, and it was like, well, (laughs) let's, let's talk about it, you know, let's scale it back, you know, yes, chickens are great. Do you want to like go out there every morning and night and make sure that everything's locked up and good, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, you want goats? Okay. Do you like vacations? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there there is an aspect to that. So when someone comes to you and they say, um, 
you know, I've got a, I got a half an acre in the suburbs and I want to do some edible, edible landscaping because this house is just bought and it is a blank slate. It's just a blank canvas, which is what happens after builders build a house. Right. How do you guide people into their first steps and introduce some of these concepts to them? Yeah. So we'll start with an initial consult and mm -hmm. uh, so we'll come out um, usually it's me and um, I'll, you know, I really start by, I tell people, tell me everything. You know, I just want to hear everything they've been thinking of, you know, and, and usually it, it, it will kind of range from, you know, well, I was thinking about this over here to, you know, well, my, my grandparents used to have an apple tree and that's something I've always like, you know, so it, it's it kind of fun because it ranges from like observations they've had of their land to nostalgia. Um, and often I like to encourage people to continue to make observations. You know, it's like, okay, where, where do you see that it being the most sunny in your yard? You know, where, where is it the most wet? Where do you walk when you come out to your yard? Where do you walk? You know, because yes, we do design and that is a service we offer. And yes, we, you know, have expertise in that, but I really try to communicate to folks that like, they are the best designers because they there's no way we can spend as much time with their land as we could, whether it's a, a tenth of an acre or 10 acres. You know, there's they really are going to be able to capture the most kind of existing site conditions as possible. And, and we can work with them. So I really try to encourage it to be collaborative as much as possible. Um, and I find that the more people are invested in that way, the, the more hap the happier they're going to be with it, you know, um, and the more they're going to be understanding when, you know, something doesn't quite work out perfectly because, you know, that's nature. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So if you were going to be working with, say, a developer, would you then proceed to make a lot of different types of areas and a lot of different um, installations? Or would you sort of say, yeah, everyone's going to get one fruit tree, one one nut bush, one you know whatever. Like if you're if you're doing a big area with a developer, what would you what would you suggest for them? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would. Uh, what I would do is I would really focus the 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 kind of areas around the home to be a like very neglect tolerant and low maintenance um, because you don't know exactly who the homeowner is going to be mm -hmm. but also leave room for variation and leave room for there to be changes that would be made and then really advocate for a community space um, that can be m m better managed if possible and i'm really a fan of community orchards because the, the reality is fruit trees and nut trees take a lot less work than, than veggies. Um, and mm -hmm. so if, if that energy can kind of be focused there and then people can have their veggie gardens maybe at their house, then I think that there's a lot more opportunity um, for abundance, I guess, um, and, and learning. And so I think, yeah, in a development, I would, I would really focus on the landscaping, like the edible landscaping and having lots of uh, uh, perennial pollinator uh, flowers and herbs, um, especially herbs that, you know, like so, there's so many great herbs, even like, you know, rosemary, lavender, sage, oregano that are so useful and also feed the pollinators, you know, so it's, and they're so mostly easy to grow. So I would 
most likely focus on that for the homes. Um, and then yes, have like some fruit trees scattered amongst and, and focus on neglect tolerant fruit trees. That's neat. I went to visit Niagarahood a couple months ago and in the cul-de-sacs in the neighborhood, there were these, instead of just being a big light bulb shaped blob, it was more like a loop. And in the center of the loop was a planted area. And every single one of these different cul-de-sacs had this round installation, this round shaped installation of perennial herbs. It was lovely. Yes. I love that. Oh, love that. Yeah. So talk to me about what, what you could do or what, what, a city could do in terms of food installations and edible landscaping in public places in the city? Like how, how would, how would you make that case? How would you advocate for that? Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, I feel like the, the, the main hurdle there is just ensuring that the, 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 the grounds team, the grounds crew, the maintenance crew has the education needed to take care of it because the infrastructure is already in place. They've already got budget for trees and plants. You know, it's like it would really just be like changing the species out and then making sure that the crews know how to take care of the plantings. Um, and, you know, I think the key would be because when I've talked with city municipalities about it, you know, the, well, the fruits, if we plant edible fruits, trees, they're going to make a mess and, you know, it's going to be an issue. And, and I think the reality is like, you know what, we're going to build a, a partnership and a network with, with food banks and, and, and organizations that glean food, because the reality is there's plenty of hungry people. And if that food is not being harvested by the people in the parks, it will go to hungry mouths as long as the pipeline's in place. And so I think that can really mitigate that issue. And the funny thing is that like, even in Nashville, in parks, in developments, um, there are uh, edible plants. Um, service berry is my favorite one to talk about because, like, it's one that like kind of uh, broke the barrier, you could almost say, of the nursery trade. And and so service berries get planted a lot in landscaping. And I have been to uh, numerous parks and developments, commercial developments in Nashville, and harvested service berries, and you know, I, I remember even once I was harvesting some and there was a landscaper, you know, out there weeding and he was like, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, I'm harvesting the service berries because they're really delicious. And he was like, they're not edible. And I was like, I mean, they are, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, I just, it was just kind of this like, oh, wow. You know, here's this like, I mean, it's one of my favorite fruits and they get planted and people don't, people don't even realize it, even the people that are like maintaining them. So I, I really don't think it's a huge stretch for municipalities to do it. It's really just an educational thing. Um, That's very true. The service berries, I'm going to just riff on the service berry for a second. Last place that I worked before I left corporate, but on the campus, there were these huge, beautiful, multi-trunked, graceful trees that grew between two buildings and in the fall they would be this beautiful autumn blaze color they bloomed to the most beautiful pinkish white 
then they had these berries and then the birds descended within a week, you know, it they were all gone and they were just these lovely, lovely trees, large bushes, small bushes, yeah. and they were just so beautiful. And I thought, my gosh, I would love to plant this at my house. This is so pretty. And then I moved to a farm. And then one year I had been, you know, I had been walking past these bushes for a long time. And there, there, that one day they were right in front of my face and I was, I had to walk right past them and they had kind of become very laden with fruit. And I just reached up and I grabbed it and I was curious because I felt the same way that I had heard before. Like, oh, like what did the, you don't just go try and stuff. So I crushed it and I smelled it and I was like, this is edible. Like I could tell it was edible. I'm like, you know, these leaves look like a blueberry. What the heck is this? And I smelled it and I'm like, okay, I hope I don't die. Like tasted it. It was sweet. It tasted like a blueberry had a baby with an almond. And I'm like, that's perfect. Perfect. And, yep. And I was like, what is this? And so I asked the landscaping crew, they're like, oh, we don't know. I don't know. The landscaper put, you know, whatever. So I started doing research and because I didn't know the word to look up, I didn't know even how to find it. And many, many Google searches later, this was like this mission that I was on. This is the, this is the stupidest thing. It took the longest time. Finally come to something called Saskatoon, also known as the service berry. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is edible. Well, fast forward to, uh, and I, I would pick them and I would eat them like right there at work. I would just pick them and I would eat them sometimes or go out and like get some granola and yogurt and pick some, you know, service berries and throw them in my breakfast. And years later I moved to my farm. And one of the first things I said is I want service berries. And so I planted two large service berries on either side of my garden gate and they're going to grow up and they're just going to be really beautiful. But yeah, I'm with you. Service berries are absolutely gorgeous. And they're, they're one of those trees. It's so they're graceful and they're lovely and they grow just fine, different varieties and very cold places too. So absolutely. I, I'm with you. The service berries. Oh, they're so pretty. They're yeah. They're one of my favorites. And, and it was that, that was service berry was kind of, uh, a wake-up call for me about how easy it would be to transition our our kind of landscaping in commercial developments to be more edible because it was over they were you know it's like service berry was there it was doing it you know yeah um, yeah crab apples are another one crab apples get planted a lot um and actually they're one of the like approved trees by the electric utility company here because you know they they will stay on the smaller side mm-hmm. and it's funny because, you know, crab apples is kind of a blanket term for, you know, a, a smaller apple that, you know, and there's thousands of varieties, you know, and mm. there's new ones that are coming every day, you know, well, I wouldn't say every day, but, you know, like if you plant a seed from an apple, mm-hmm. you're not going to get that same apple, right? Because the genetic diversity in each seed is, is one in a million or something. And so, you know, that's how you would create a new crab apple. You just plant a seed and see what happens. Um, and that's kind of the story of Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman, is that he would go around and just plant seeds. And so that's how we got a lot of the apples today is because they were just seedlings. Um, but all that to say, like, there are some delicious crab apples out there that, that I discovered because the electric utility was handing them out to people to plant under the electric lines. And people didn't even know they were edible, but they were absolutely, I mean, I thought they were better than any apple I could buy at the store, you know, really? and um, they just were small. And it's like, 
great. You don't have to commit to a whole apple. You just have like two or three and you're good to go, you know? So I, I am also a pretty big fan of crap and they're so easy to grow too, at least here. They don't have a lot of the same issues that, that bigger apples have. Um, are they sweet? Oh yeah. I mean, once again, it's a big, there's some crab apples that are just, Oh, they're teeny and you put them in yeah. your mouth and you just want to spit them right out. But there are some crab apples that are just totally scrumptious. And, um, you're blowing my mind here, Jeremy. <laughs> I didn't know yeah, this. I mean, I, know this. I think of crab apples as being like tart and like really like you need to add a lot of sugar, which kind of bothers me from a culinary standpoint that we get, you know, got to add so much extra sugar. Totally. And there are crab apples like that, right? You know, it's, uh -huh. uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's kind of this blanket term for a, a smaller apple. And, um, and so many people learn about crab apples as something that is like, Oh, you know, but there's, there's just some really tasty ones out there that can be planted in the landscape. And I see it. I was in a, I was in a development the other day, a condo development, and there's this beautiful crab apple there. <laughs> and, you know, none of the neighbors knew it was edible. And I was started passing out the apples to the neighbors. And I'm like, y'all, this is a delicious apple tree. And of course, everyone's like, Oh my goodness, this is so delicious. I had no idea. You know, it's been here for the 10 years I've lived here, you know. That's so funny. Oh, what else? My goodness. I know. So I don't think it would be that hard for us to train. I mean, even if we just did more crab apples and service berries, you know, it's like, and, but, and people knew about it. It's just like, it's, it wouldn't be that, it would not be that hard, I think, to transition to more of that. Um, it's just societal and cultural education, you know, mm. acceptance, you know, these plants just want to be accepted. <laughs> seen, <laughs> like us all. <laughs> I've seen people planting um, multiple different color Swiss chard just for splash of color in window boxes or like just as landscaping, you know, just like little, little annuals instead of geraniums. Swiss yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Totally. I see that with kale and cabbages sometimes too. There's oh, like yeah. a metal frilly, cabbage and kales that get planted that and there's there's even more there's edible dogwoods that get planted a lot that people don't know about kusa dogwood is a edible dogwood that i mean i was at the symphony hall this was years ago but it was i was at the symphony hall at the nashville second anyways it was a newer one they built i was there and i was eating the dogwood fruits and you know of course everyone's looking at me weird but you know who cares they were delicious and then i didn't have to go in and pay a lot of money for the concessions. So it worked out. See, I didn't know that about dogwood fruits either. Yeah. No. Now, now the American dogwood fruits are great for birds, but they're not going to, they're not going to serve us humans uh, well in that way. But, but Kusa dogwoods, K-O-U-S-A, the inside pulp is, is really sweet and delicious. And then Cornelian cherries, which is a type of dogwood, it's cornus moss. That's another, that's another one. And, 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 uh, especially Eastern Europe, that's one that people know a lot. You know, I, I have some clients from Eastern Europe, and, and when I tell them you can grow Cornelian cherry here, they get so excited because it's one from that they remember from home. So now, what is a Cornelian cherry? It's it is a type of dogwood. Um, it's misnamed, I think, but it's um, it's it is it's a cousin of of the American dogwood, um, and it has beautiful yellow flowers in the early spring, and then produces little fruits that are tasty and can be made in jams and jellies. That's so neat. Now tell me how what you do relates to the whole concept of food forest, because I've started to hear about food forest in the world of permaculture. Um, 
over the past few years, it's gotten to be quite the hot topic. Can you explain yes. a food forest? Yeah, I mean, you know, food forests, uh, it's basically the idea of like mimicking the forest ecosystem, but replacing most of the species with species that are edible or medicinal for humans. Um, you know, often the layers get talked about, right? You have your like root layer and then your ground cover layer and then your herbaceous layer and then your shrub layer and then your small tree layer and your large tree layer and then your big large canopy layer and then your vine layer, you know? Um, and, and really it's, it's just, uh, how do we take the principles of the forest ecosystem? And, and I really think that this, this has evolved as such a, uh, a hot topic because we see how resilient forest ecosystems are. You know, when there's a drought, there's not watering brigades going out to water the forest, you know, like the forest is, is mostly okay. Um, or when there's uh, floods, you know, the forest is mostly okay. Yeah. There's probably some trees that get, you know, depending on where it is, but, we don't worry about a forest when it floods or, you know, the forest doesn't set bags of trash out and says, Hey, can you carry this away? You know, it's, it's a, it's a closed loop system. Um, so it's really resilient. And I, so I think that like sentiment of like, how do we create a resilient food system um, that is also incredibly low maintenance? I think that's why it's really uh, started to be a hot topic because it's like, wow, we can grow food and medicine um, in a way that is like potentially less work and more resilient to the natural uh, to the weather patterns that we're experiencing. And it feels awesome. I mean, you know, like I'm sure once in a while this happens, but like, you know, who goes into a forest and goes, oh, you know, like this doesn't feel very good. You know, like you go into a forest and mostly it's like, oh, feels good to be in the woods, you know, um, and I know it's not true of everyone, but I feel like that's a pretty common sentiment that it, 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 people go to hike in the forest. And so, you know, what if that was part of the way we grew food was that feeling of being in the forest, you know? So I think all of those are converging and I have, I have designed, installed and maintain um, a number of food forests. And, you know, the reality is it's not a one or even two year project, you know, it's a, five, 10, 15 year long uh, journey to grow a food forest, you know, to, to really be in its full abundant state. Um, so it's pretty different than I think most of the ways that we're used to either growing food or used to just like consuming, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that it will inspire more patience and, and kindness in our population if more people <laughs> participate in food forests. Yeah, that sounds really neat. I mean, I can imagine it would be wonderful to go walk in a state forest, you know, go on a hike like you talked about. And, by, and I also want to say editorially, it's the healthy response to go, wow, this is lovely. Like that's healthy. <laughs> Yeah. The other responses, I don't find them to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I yeah. just, I just, yeah. I'm very aware that there's people who have never spent time outside like that. And so there's like a yeah. fear involved. And, and I, so I'm, I'm really like aware of that there is popu like there is a population of people that has grown a lot over the last, like probably 50 to 75, maybe a hundred years that, 
you know, and, and of course, like how sad is that, but it's just a reality. And how do we, how do we make that more accessible and make it so that outside is not a scary place, you know, um, yeah, disconnected from where the food comes from and how it actually grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. It's a big problem though, because I, well, for many reasons, but when people don't know where their food comes from, it's, they they have limits. They have very limited concepts of what is food and, you know, what it, what is, what is correct. And then they teach that to their children and the cycle perpetuates, you know, it's, it's definitely an issue. And there's so many things out there that are edible. Like I remember growing up and you had a choice of, my mom would say, okay, we're going to get some apples at the grocery store. I'm like, what kind? And the kind was red, yellow, or green. Yeah. The kind. Yeah. Like kind. There's three. There's three kinds of apples. The green ones are too sour. Yellow, mm, red. Mm. That's it. And I thought until I was probably in my late 20s, I thought that I didn't really care for apples yeah. until I had some real apples. And so that's that's a form of ignorance. Now, yeah. it's I, I'm not going to blame my mom for that. That's yeah. what the, the grocery store stocked. That's right. Like a box for green, yellow, and red. It looks nice, and that's it. You know, on to the next bit of produce. And now we have pink apples in the grocery store and all different kinds of pink apples. In fact, I rarely see greens, reds, or yellows. <laughs> They're mostly know, pinks fine. now. <laughs> They're mostly pinks. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's amazing. You know, once, once, once people try those other bits of produce, they try those other options. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. And it's like their world opens. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. absolutely oh it's so exciting to see you must see this with kids oh yeah like uh, how, how how are the kids of today receiving this i mean are they excited well i mean i have had the experience multiple times of working with a family and and the parents are like yeah our kids don't eat anything green you know and then you build a garden we're outside and mm-hmm. you know i'm with the kids and i'm just like picking leaves of arugula right you know right out mm-hmm. of the garden just mm-hmm. eating them and of course they're like mesmerized and you know they try it because it's like well that guy's doing it and he seems cool i'm gonna try it you know and mm-hmm. all of a sudden like kids who never ate green are outside foraging you know from their garden and you know how it really inspired me because of like how quickly they were able to go from like not eating anything green to just like having to be told to like, don't harvest too much because we need, you know, like we, those plants have to, to keep growing, you know? And it's, I think it's all about access, you know, it's like mm-hmm. access experience. If you don't have the access or the experience to that fresh food and a community of people that are doing it, you know, I mean, I think it would have been very different if their parents were out there eating that arugula leaf versus someone they don't really know as well. You know what I mean? It's, it's also mm-hmm. that experience of like, oh, this is someone who's different and cool, you know, and they've got a knife on their belt. Wow, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Oh, how fun. How fun. You know, one one family at a time, you're making a difference. And this is generational impact, too. Mm -hmm. It really makes a difference. The same way that we got away from food, we need to take an active part and active effort into getting people back into food, especially, you know, kids. Because their parents yeah. didn't grow up. They, the parents are willing, but they don't know. They can't really lead the way. You know, they, they, it's great that these kids have these other experiences. Yes. That's wonderful. 
So what do you think that this is going to do? I mean, if you're able to scale this out, right? What what would you what would you do with edible landscaping as far as encouraging people um, in the whole local foods movement? What what do you think the impact could be? Mm. Well, I think um, I think there's a lot of different answers to that, um, and yeah. I'll do my best to to not jump around too much. But um, you know, one impact is I think it would it will send more families and more people to the farmer's market and local grocery stores, and they will be a lot less likely to kind of balk at the price. Because I've seen that with my clients who mm-hmm. had never been to the farmer's market and who, when hearing about how much a fresh tomato is, would be like, oh, that's crazy. And then after growing a garden, you know, and having the experience of, of trying to grow big, nice, juicy tomatoes and seeing how much work went into it, then was like, okay, you know what, where's the local farmer's market, you know, and not only because they wanted to like go buy them, but they also wanted to like, talk to people who do it, you know, because now they have that shared experience. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I want to meet a farmer who who also knows about growing tomatoes, you know, and so then, and I, so I've seen that over and over people who, like I said, never been to a farmer's market, grow a garden, and then they go to the farmer's market and they become like active, engaged, educated uh, consumers of, of local food. And that to me feels really exciting um, to think about um, a food system where, you know, like my dream is that like uh, you have like people, like farmers growing the crops that take a lot of space you know, uh, squashes and, and, and tomatoes and beans and livestock, you know, in the grains, you know, corn and rice, you know, and then you have your home gardeners growing the, the, the things that, um, are really nice to have very fresh. And the things that I've heard my farming friends be like, I don't really want to grow. That, you know? And so I, I feel like there's such a beautiful symbiosis, symbiosis that can happen, um, between like farmers and your home gardener. Um, and, and I, I just think there's so much potential there. Um, but you know, at least for now, I think it's just creating a more active and engaged, uh, base of people to, to go to the farmer's market. Um, so I, I think that's one like emergent, um, benefit of, of edible landscaping, of foodscaping, um, and, you know, another one that I'm pretty passionate about is like employment and, and livelihood, you know, uh, good livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2021, I converted National Foodscapes to be a worker-owned cooperative. And so I, I basically had the company valued and then sold it to current and future employees of the company. And so after certain metrics, you can become an owner of the company. And I am one of six owners. So I'm still active, an active owner in the company, but I, my vote is equal to everyone else's. So, so it's an egalitarian voting. It's democracy. It's actually really, I've learned a lot about governance and democracy through creating the the cooperative. Um, But that has been a really um, fun journey to see how much impact I can have or we can have as small businesses with employment and livelihood. And um, and so one thing we're really wanting to work with now are, are children who come here from especially like Central and South America, because a lot of them, their parents were growing food back where they were from. 
And they come here and then they don't have land access. Like a lot of them are living in apartments and they don't have um, any place to grow. And, and then we're excited about offering like, especially those youth who sometimes don't have a lot of options, you know, they don't, you know, they're not going to be able to go to a nice college and get a nice degree. You know, often it's like, well, you're going to go into the trades. Um, And so we're really excited about building out um, a a company and an industry where that's, that's different, you know, and, and people can come and, and, and feel like, Hey, I've, I've got a wonderful job and I'm treated well and I love the work I do. And, uh, you know, livelihood is more uh, aligned with our ethics and our values and our culture, you know. I like that. I like that a lot. I can see that as AI starts to replace a lot of humans, let's just take like, I'm going to super simplify this for the sake of um, illustration here, but I'm going to pick on Kroger because they're our local big grocery store. So if Kroger corporate level is doing away with project managers and uh, call center managers and, um, you know, executive assistants and, and administrative assistants and, you know, analysts and stuff, because they now have a virtual assistant and they have other capabilities those people don't have jobs anymore right they could go home and they can plant their yard and maybe it's it's not necessarily enough to i mean just for those individuals i mean they could become farmers and then make enough on their small on their small land in order to support their family and everything but really when you go to work for a wage you're a slave to that wage because you need to earn that wage in order to buy your food yeah right so <clears throat> that's their only option meanwhile if you grow your own food you're not only taking pressure off of that centralized food system but you're removing the amount of money that you have to earn elsewhere and then it's a higher quality food and you know where it came from and you know whether it's got like this that or the other uh chemical in it and and what spray has been put on it and everything and so there you've just taken through technology uh the implementation of technology and replacing humans, you've given those humans something else to do. And they do something with their hands. And there's definitely something that happens when people do something with their hands and they grow a thing and they do a thing. And, you know, they, they, they're, they're part of the process. Like the kids, you know, they're out there, they're part of the process. This, I have heard the story, like you told so many times about the kids who wouldn't eat vegetables until they were able to see a carrot grow. And they're so excited to taste that carrot after they pulled it out of the ground. It was a baby carrot. And then they learned how to saute it in orange juice or eat it raw or whatever. And yeah. they loved it. They loved the way it tastes because they had an actual visceral connection with the process, with watching the, the thing yes. grow and protecting it and then harvesting it and then preparing it. And these are all, these are all skills that have somewhat disappeared. I, most recently, Joel Salton just said, in order for us to really succeed as a society and get into local food supply chains, supply systems and food supply chains and small farmers and regenerative agriculture people have to learn how to cook first they have to learn how to prepare their own food because you got to start with raw ingredients not stuff in a box it came from the freezer aisle food comes from where it grows it does not come from the grocery store that's right that's right yeah yep and you know i i often think about the way that uh activities like cooking 
Like, what's the history of that? Like, how have humans been cooking for most of human history? Oh, yeah. It's with other humans, right? It's a community. It's cooking is something that evolved in the context of community. Um, Growing food is like that. You know, building homes is like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these things evolved in the context of community. So it doesn't surprise me that like, A, cooking has become something that is like, um, a sought after skill and art or, you know, something that many people know how to do. And it also doesn't surprise me that someone who is, you know, either by themselves or with just their, their family, like how hard that is to probably feel excited about cooking because, you know, I just know some of my favorite experiences are with my friends and we're sitting there chopping veggies and, and, you know, talking and, having a drink and, and making a big meal together and, and how I've learned a lot through that as well. You know, I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that you roast. Oh, that's a great way to roast veggies. I never thought about adding that or whatever, you know? And um, so I, I, it definitely encourages or inspires me, I should say to, to, to think about what are, how can we do that? How can we, how can we facilitate more community dynamics so that, you know, something like cooking, it's part of culture, right? To me, that's culture. Culture is something that people gather to do on a regular basis, you know? Um, And yeah, there's just so many elements to that, that, yeah, my mind just went in a million different directions. (laughs) (laughs) Culture doesn't have to be ethnic either or religious. It, It can be local. It can be experiential. It can be social circle it can be individual preferences all blending together and everyone's i have had some of the most wonderful potluck lunches when people from uh you know at work they would all make something you know that would be the thing you got to make it homemade though right and so people would bring these homemade things and we would have potlucks from all different ethnicities and and all different levels of aptitude and and sure enough we'd end up swapping recipes halfway through and bringing something new or getting a repeat you know i I'd bring that next time you can need to do more of that or make that hotter or make that not so hot yes yeah yeah it's it's definitely a real thing and people don't want to get together and chit chat so much they get together over lunch or dinner mm-hmm. you know they get together over meals and it, it's important it really is important yeah yeah and i love what you just said about culture you know not being always tied to you know, one or, or a specific thing, then I, I think that's because it's always changing. Culture is always, yeah. you know, change is the only constant. And, and I think often about like what makes up culture and, and one of my favorite, like, um, I guess like thought experiments you could say is like thinking about how much like music and stories play into culture. And so like one that I love to play with is like, all right, I, I've done this so many times when I speak to groups and I go, okay, how many people know the Oscar Mayer Wiener song? I wish I was an Oscar Mayer Wiener. That's all I really want to be, you know? And of course, like pretty much a hundred percent of people know that, you know? And then I go, how many people know the Pawpaw song, you know? And usually it's like maybe 20%, you know? And and I go, and then of course it's like, well, way down yonder in the pawpaw patch, picking up pawpaws, put them in your pocket, picking up pawpaws, put them in your pocket, picking up pawpaws, put them in your pocket, way down yonder in the pawpaw patch. And, you know, here's one song about like processed, like 
shitty hot dogs. And here's another one about like our native fruit that is like basically our mango and, you know, our native mango. And like everyone knows a song about the shitty hot dog, but like not not even close to a half of people know the song about the native fruit. And and I, to me, that's that's culture. Right. That is culture right there. And so um, I'm really fascinated by that. And I'm like, OK, that it, it's sad that, you know, culture can shift so much from our commercials and what we're being sold. And I'm like, cool, well, we just need to be we need to reclaim our culture. You know, we need to sing songs, you know, um, and tell stories. And, you know, I, that's another one. I mean, I think about the kid goes home and says, Mom, Dad, I want to be a farmer, you know, and the parents are like, oh, that's cute. Yeah, sure. You know, instead of like, oh, thank God. I'm so glad you want to be a farmer. That means that we're going to have great food. You know what I mean? Like, I'm that's proud of you, Johnny. Yes. Be yeah. a farmer. That's, that's, I mean, that is culture right there, you know? It is. That is so true. That is so true. I mean, I think too, I, I love, there's a diagram where it shows a bunch of leaves of trees and then it shows a bunch of logos of like big corporations like McDonald's and, and Exxon. Yeah. And it, you know, how many can you identify of each, right? And I know they've, they've done this with groups of people, especially kids. And like the logos, like, I don't know, close to 100%, you know, and the leaves, like 10%, maybe, you know, that's culture. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is definitely culture. It's also emphasis on the time you're spending with your children. And then also um, a picture of you know, where have you been put placing your own emphasis? You know, culture needs to be maintained. It yeah. needs stewards. It needs to be repeated. You need to teach them the songs. You need to teach them the games. You need to teach yes. them the sayings. And there's definitely something there. You know, it, it, it does. It needs to be maintained or it disappears because ultimately culture is up against the Oscar Mayer uh, marketing machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a beast. The force is strong, you know? Yeah, and, is. and part of it is like, yeah, man, that song is so catchy. So we need to be making catchy songs, you know? Um, I made up a jingle for Nashville Foodscapes, kind of inspired by that because I was like, there's all these catchy, you know, the best part of waking up is Folgers in my cup, you know, like, like mm -hmm. people know that it's catchy, you know? And I was like, we can do that, right? We can make catchy songs, you know? And so I made up this jingle that goes, the grass is always greener on the other side. So transform that grass into a place that provides food, medicine, beauty, and fun. There's plenty of room for everyone. Join us in the garden outside. And, you know, I was like, great. Now let's like take that and let's put it on the radio. That's our advertisement, you know? And we can't. Like radio stations won't do that. They won't play, at least here, they won't play our song. Why? And, and I was like, well, you play McDonald's songs, like, and whatever, like, what, you know? And I just like, I don't know what the double standard is, but it was definitely a moment of, of like, okay, the force is strong. <laughs> you know? did, did they refuse you advert, like airtime on advertising? They, it was like, if we wanted to advertise on their radio station, we had to do it in their format, which is like, write something out. And then, you know, I mean, you've probably heard it like on NPR, you know, you have that yeah. one person that's like, uh, blah, 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 you know, and like, we've done that. And that's fine. But I'm like, come on, you know, like, oh, my gosh, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta take this to another level. So 
Maybe uh, they should be singing the Pawpaw song. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. That's how I feel. I'm like, come on. Summer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So where do you see the local food movement going? I mean, it feels like to me, I mean, this is now that I'm no longer driving and commuting to, um, you know, my uh, white collar job anymore after the last couple of years. Uh, it feels to me like it's really taken off a lot more. It feels like it's really gotten some some legs under it and people are doing it more and they're interested and they're engaged and now you know, you've got common ground is out and that's just like going crazy and getting so much press. I just feel like the whole concept of soil building, regenerative agriculture and cows farts aren't going to kill the earth. Now they're going to actually, cows are going to save the earth, right? And like, thank God. Yeah, um, yeah I was yeah. getting worried there over those darn cow farts. So, I, you know, I, I feel like it's really getting legs and it's moving. But again, that's in my little circle. What, what, are, you, what are you experiencing out there? Yeah. Um, yes, I I resonate with everything you said, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like I'm also confused because I've seen uh, farmers in our local area who um, are really great farmers that have taken jobs because they couldn't make a livelihood. Like they they couldn't make a you know they couldn't uh, uh, actually like have enough money to like make a savings account, you know, and, or afford what they needed to, to make it. And, you know, that's, that doesn't have to be farming as a whole, but that just has been part of what I've seen with a number of people. And, and so it definitely has made me like question, like, what, what is that? You know, why, why, why is that? And I mean, you know, we've already talked about, there's some pretty strong forces, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like, and I, I know this is like a larger thing, but I, I almost think one of our best hopes is having more uh, people, farmers, gardeners uh, run for political office and make changes that way. Because think about it, if we stop subsidizing industrial agriculture, that would turn the whole system on its head because it's not profitable. So, you know, industrial agriculture is like not profitable. And of course it's like horrible for so many other reasons, but it gets propped up by subsidies, by our tax dollars. And so I do wonder, like, would that actually be the, the, the easier, easier way to do it is just have a bunch of people run for office and then we get rid of those subsidies. And of course, like, I don't know, there would be so much, so much that would happen from that. But that is a thought that I've had. That's interesting. I, I can tell you that, well, for people listening, uh, subsidies, they're probably wondering, what, what, is, what is with subsidies? The way farm subsidies comes to farmers is through what is known as crop insurance. That's what it is. It's crop insurance is a farm subsidy. And farmers are guaranteed to make X amount of dollars per acre for Y crop. And crop insurance is only available from the federal government on a mass program for six crops in the United States today. Just six. Corn, soy, wheat not oats is it rice i i don't even know all my cash grain crops are cash grain crops but i do know that the sixth one is sugar cane of all sugar cane you need that right yeah so it's it's a very limited 
bunch of options available for these farmers to have their guaranteed incomes. And when they're spending more and more and more on NPK FERTs, so fertilizers that are nitrogen, phosphorus, and um, potash, potassium, those chemical fertilizers, they're spending more and more inputs because their soils are becoming depleted because you're exporting all of that organic matter out and you're putting minerals in and organic matter out and putting minerals in. You know, today's food system, we're expending 20 calories of of energy for every one calorie of food we're getting out of it. And we're not putting compost back in. Everyone has not subscribed to your compost bunch there, Jeremy. And right. And they are not, they're not spreading compost back on the fields after every time they do the harvest. And that soil blows away and the organic matter becomes depleted after a long time. And yeah, having to do more and more inputs. And that's why farmers are starting to not be able to have these margins anymore. The, the, the fertilizers are so expensive and the soil is becoming poorer quality. They're getting pinched. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who say now that farmers, they can't afford to knock over regenerative. It's not a matter of, oh, I can't afford to convert. And I'm talking organic, I'm talking regenerative. Yeah. And then you've got small farmers who are doing startups and they're, they're netting $170,000 an acre with high intensity, interplanting, carbon sequestering stuff, lots of compost, lots of animal manures, like not conventional farming, but traditional farming, old McDonald type closed loop systems, right? Yeah. You know, farmer like old McDonald had a farm EIAO and then he listed all of the different animals that he had. There's a reason for that because it's a closed it's a closed system uh, that is so it's a virtuous circle. And yeah. you know, it's 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 a cycle. And yeah, I'm seeing it around me too. And farmers mm-hmm. are saying, you know what? I can't make the conversion. I'm gonna sell or I'm gonna go work off farm. Or the kids are going, yo, why? This isn't fun. This isn't cool. I see you scrambling. It's a debt-based system. You got to go for your, you know, your big loans for the seed and the fertilizer every year. I had one, I had one neighbor who used to spend $18,000 a year for fertilizer. Last year, she spent $42,000 for her fertilizer. She doesn't have any more acres. It's the same. It's ridiculous. It's, well, and those prices on fertilizer, well. yeah. those prices went up because uh, oh, yeah. of synthetic fertilizers uh, are made in Ukraine. Yes. When that war, as it's still happening, is like that, that drove prices up because, of course, yeah. of what was happening. So, yeah. Not making it easier to get to oil either. There's a reason that we're out in the middle of the ocean doing deep water horizon stuff because yeah. the easy, cheap stuff is gone. So, right. we're getting down to the bottom of the, we're getting down to the bottom of the drink there. That's right. It's, it's harder I mean, and harder. I think what you're touching on for me is something I think a lot about. And I know this is like, you know, I, I, I sometimes am hesitant to venture into like topics that that feel like insurmountable. But I, I, I sometimes do all also feel like it's important to talk about. But one thing that I think about is like how it's really the commodification of food that has made it so challenging, you know, a food, water and shelter. Like like what if those were not commodified? Um, and, and, you know, then it's, it's community, it's, it's all community rooted. Um, 
And, you know, it's interesting because I, I learned about this recently and I was so inspired because it was it was that exactly. It was a system where food, shelter and water were not commodified. But after the uh, Mexican Revolution of 1910. So here here's something that's happening in Mexico so close to us that really nobody knows about in this country. Um, but after the Mexican Revolution, 1910, which was a revolution of mostly farmers because they were not, they did not have good land access. It was mostly, it was a very wealthy class that had a lot of the land and they were, it was a feudalist system. Hmm. So they rose up and basically, you know, created a, a new, a, a new government. And it took a little bit of time, but it ended up creating this system of ajitos and it's E-J-I-D-O-S. And the way the ajito system worked is that Actually, the majority of land in Mexico was held in, it was held by the government and a community would basically apply to the government for land and they were granted land for free to live on and grow on. And even in 2017, up to 40%, it was 40% of land in Mexico was held in these community, like these communities. And what was cool about the system was that if that community said, we don't want to grow food anymore or we don't, want to, we don't want this land anymore. Um, it would go back into the government holding to be held for another group of people to sign up for that land. Now, NAFTA kind of screwed some things up because it basically placed some loopholes in, in, into the way that the thing, that system works so that if a community decided they didn't want to that land anymore, they could then sell it. Um, to, I mean, a lot of Ajito land was in really beautiful places. So it got sold to be resorts or developments and things like that. And often it was the kids, right? The kids of the, the Ajito were like, well, we don't want this life anymore. We want to live what we see people in America with big, nice trucks and, you know, nice houses. So they would sell that land um, rather than it going back into the public pool. But what was so like learning about that, first of all, for me, is so inspiring to know that like there is a system out there where land access is 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 a is a right. You know, it's not a privilege. It's a right. All you got to do is like apply for it and you get it. You know, there was that was it. All you had to say was, I, I have a group of people here and we want to grow food on land and you were granted land. Um, and also, you know, uh, talking to people from Mexico in this country. A lot of them, if they are from an ajito, said one of the biggest differences for them of living in Mexico compared to the United States is when they lived in Mexico, they never worried about going hungry. They always knew there was going to be food. Where wow. here, as you said earlier, so point, uh, so uh, so beautifully, was that like you have to make money to grow food. I mean, sorry, you have to make money to buy food in this country for the most part, right? And so that was like, a, you know, so, so these folks like they had food. It didn't matter. They may not have any work. They may not have any money, but they had food to eat. They had a roof over their head. They had water. Um, whereas here, if you don't work, you really, you know, you can't have access to any of that. And what a big shift that is. And for me, that's that's those things becoming commodities. Yeah. Yeah, that's. You talk about the illusion of choice too. There's what you said, like six, like there's major six major brands that have all these 200 brands underneath them. Food is completely commoditized yeah. and it's made largely out of those 
ingredients that I listed off poorly, lamely. I should I should probably know what those are, even though I'm not a cash grain grain crop farmer. But yeah, those those six ingredients. Yep. And I, I mean, I, I, going back to like the local food scene, I mean, I, I see so many people who have the passion and the excitement and even the, the knowledge of, of growing food, but they can't afford land. You know, you don't need to have a lot of land anymore, though. I know, but I mean, here in Nashville or I mean, here in Middle Tennessee, like. I mean, it's it's wild what land prices are, you know, and so I, I just I. I see people in our community that would love to, to farm, but they just, they're like, I don't know. You know, I, you don't, they don't have family money. You know, if they don't, if they don't have that, that security net or that family money and, and they're working a job making 20 bucks an hour, there's just no way, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if they live in an apartment, that might be true, but even if they have a townhouse or something small, they could, it's, it's I think people do not know how much food you can produce out of such a small space. I think, I think they think they really do need those five acres to feed the family of four. I, I, th I think that they think that because they see pictures of farms being these huge swaths of land with those combines that are million yeah. dollar machines. And there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're, they're marvels of engineering. Don't get me wrong, but totally. you know, that, that isn't what it takes. Some of the most successful um, small farmers are doing, you know, like I said, $170,000 worth of produce they're selling off of uh, one acre. They don't even have any mechanization. They don't have a rotor tiller. They don't have a, they don't have a, a tractor. They got a broad fork and they've got some drip irrigation. And then eventually the, a hoop house pays for itself within one year. And dude, you're off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's true. It's, there's so much food can be grown in a, in a small area. And, and that's why I'm very inspired by the idea of people and community growing food for themselves. Um, because I have friends that, that, yeah. uh, that took the classes by market gardeners that, you know, were saying, mm -hmm. hey, you can make six figures off of one acre. And, and, and I have friends that went through those programs and they came out of it and they said, you know, yeah, you can implement the systems and they're incredible. But if you don't have the market, you know, if you don't have the consumer base, then it doesn't matter how much food you grow. We, you, we, we can't sell enough to make that to make that money or there, there's people that are not willing to spend the money, you know, that we need to make it work. And so I'm That's curious, true. you know, yeah. I, I think there's so much context, right? Context is everything. It is. And it needs to be consumer driven, too, because that's what farmers eventually do. I mean, like we we respond to customer demand. Right. So people will tell me, oh, I want more turkey or I want more lamb. I'm like, all right, give me a couple years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry, I don't have in my back pocket. Yeah, yeah vegetables know. a little faster turnaround. But I mean, not everyone doesn't have to grow everything for their family. So, I mean, I have, I have a 2,600 square foot garden, which is mostly raised beds. It's got lots of grass. I got all my compost in there and two fruit trees. So it's not like 2,600 square feet of crops. Right. And it's, it's, it's enough for, you know, our family of four, but I don't have to grow all the stuff that I like because my girlfriend, Lynn, she also runs a CSA. So I'm not going to spend a quarter of my garden to grow potatoes because she's got seven acres of them. Yes. So I buy her CSA 
And then when my tomatoes come in, I don't opt for the tomatoes from her CSA, but she has a hot house and I do not. So I buy her tomatoes when it's early, right? And I'm not growing my own mushrooms, but I do grow my own shard. So I'm not going to buy hers. So I'm going to buy mushrooms from her and I'm going to grow my own shard. So, you know, you, 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 and then some things I'm naturally terrible at growing. And one of them seems to be peas. So mm-hmm. I'm going to buy peas from her. <laughs> I'm going to buy peas from her and lettuce. My lettuce seems to like to bolt. So I'm going to buy peas and lettuce from her. And I'm going to grow my eight foot tall, amazing heirloom tomatoes. So, I mean, there's, there's a give and take, even when people are producing their own. Yeah. You start for yourself, make connections with other people. And that also grows awareness. But you, you are right. You can't just start producing and hope that if you grow it, they will come because that's not necessarily true. And it goes to the education thing that you talked about before, which is people do not understand that cheap food isn't good. Yeah. They don't understand that. Yeah. It bothers them that they, they want to spend, you know, $2 for a dozen years of corn. Sorry. I, 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 that's not even close to worth my time. I can't spend all this time and all this money and all this, you know, this working on my land and everything to, pay you to take my food that i just grew like it doesn't make sense right people need to want it people need to want it they need to they need to they need to learn i think they're learning i think it's slow i think it's a hassle and i think that people don't change unless they have to yeah and usually that's like an autistic child or an immuno uh, you know autoimmune problem or an allergy or a bad experience unfortunately it's some sort of health event and we're starting to see it. We're definitely starting to see it across yeah. the whole population, but it's still reactive, not proactive. I feel like we need to get ahead of this bigger problem because yeah. it's it's not easy to start learning to farm. It it doesn't happen overnight. It is, mm-hmm. it's a long process. Yeah, yep. And, and I, I really think it's it evolve. It it, it it farming, growing food. Um, cooking, all those things evolved in the context of community. I just, that, that just sits with me so heavily of like, none of these things are really going to be able to take off and, and really be reclaimed if we're not doing it together. <laughs> you, know? you just hit on something. That's how I actually got to farming was through cooking. Mm. I started by cooking because my kids had allergies. And so then I started to be concerned with the ingredients that are on the box, right? So you start with whole ingredients and then you get very good at it. And then you're like, well, I can't find these really good ingredients. I know how to put it together, but these, these, these base ingredients aren't any good. Well, heck, I'm going to grow my own. So maybe it is through cooking. Maybe it is through cooking. Well, and, and I mean, you know, it's like the system is, is the larger food system has so many opportunities where it could be tightened up. And I, I think, for instance, one of the reasons that, industrial food is is so cheap is because i think the statistic is like 40 percent of food that is grown and then cooked in this country is wasted goes to you know it's so nauseating it's horrible it's, it's horrible it should be it, it's it's criminal it yeah be, we should be ashamed and, of ourselves as a society yeah i mean I, you know it's like and there's and there's people that are hungry like what you know like oh there are people who are <laughs> obese and overweight and suffering from malnutrition because yes. our crappy food that we produce is so 
void of nutrients that the body's like, give me more. And the body is craving more. And so they overeat and it's just junk. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. People don't know this. People do. No. And, you know, I mean, it's like I learned about so much about this through the compost Nashville. Uh, oh, yeah. That like, you know, like here's all this food going to the landfill. And not only is that not being returned to our soil, and not only is that not being fed to people who could benefit from eating some food, even though it's mostly industrial uh, grown, mm -hmm. but then it goes in the landfill and it makes methane, right? When, when, when food waste goes into the landfill and starts to decompose, it makes methane, which is toxic to us. <laughs> it's like we breathe it in and it poisons our lungs. So, so it's like, it's so wild that like all these systems just like, like are, they're all intertwined. And so I'm like, how do, you know, it's like, I think we just, we have to start where we're at. Right. It's like, yeah. Have you noticed that when people grow their own food, they don't waste it? Yeah, that's right. Cause they work for it. That's right. Maybe that's the other thing. Maybe it's the disconnection from the process. Mm -hmm. You know, they drive it like a rental. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. That's a great analogy. Yeah. 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 So teaching kids how to cook and grow vegetables. I've always wanted to do like a side by side taste test, like man yeah. on the street side, the side by side taste test of like pastured eggs versus Walmart eggs and the yellow floppy sad eggs. Right. And an heirloom tomato you grew in your backyard versus you know the tomatoes that you see in in uh, Kmart in January right I, I would I would love to see nutritional nutritional analysis taste testing ask people if they know five different things to do with eggs yeah. it would just be it would be interesting to see you know what's what's like I, yeah I I have a strong feeling that there would be a certain percentage of people that would actually choose in this, in this taste test, they would actually choose the like industrial produced food because it's nostalgic because it reminds them of, Ugh. of childhood or of, of early adulthood or of the food that they are normally eating. You know, they're like, Oh, this tastes like what I'm used to. Okay. You know, like, and I've seen that I've been in situations with, with, with people uh, who I bring, like I, I have a neighbor and we had some potlucks and you know, it's like he go, you know, he shops for all his food at Walmart. And I brought some like really good cornbread, you know, that was made with corn that we grew and milled. And then like a really good cut of beef that it's like grass fed from a friend of mine who grew that cow. Yeah. And he took a bite of both and was like, yeah, this is different. You know, and he went back to eating what he had, you know, had. And and it was like, okay, you know, it's, it is definitely, we're talking about a generational, you know, shift here. And and, and that's why I, I yeah. come off into culture. It, it, it has to be more of a, of, of a, a broader kind of cultural and, and generational movement, um, which I think is hard for us in this time where it's like, you know what, I want... I want, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever. I can just go online and order it. And you know what? Amazon will have it there in two days. You know, it's like we're like to think about something that 
we won't see in our lifetime. But for me, that's, I think what I've tried to hold close is that like the things that I envision for my community and my world, I may not, I may not see. Um, it has to be done. You have, you know, we have to lay those foundations. We have to start the process. And there's something so satisfying and honorable about being part of that, that, that first shift, you know, the beginning, that first wave of awareness and, and doing your part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, it, you know, that has been the entrepreneurial journey, you know, is starting a small, starting two small businesses and, and seeing the challenges of that, you know, and, and how really even there, this, you know, in this country where it is founded on small business, like mm. this, the cards are stacked against us. I mean, the, the, there was, I don't know how many times the big corporations and banks have been bailed out by our government. And, you know, for the first time, you know, the PPP loan, you know, that came out that uh, during when after COVID hit that allowed small businesses to, to get some dough. And of course, like, I was so grateful that, to be able to have access to that. And it was like, wow, this is the first time that has ever happened in recent history. And how many times have the big banks and corporations been bailed out? And, and uh, you know, just, yeah, just the entrepreneurial journey has taught me so much about how important it is for us to do what we can do and also how hard that is, you know. Um, and I don't know, it's just... The blinders have come off in some ways. <laughs> Obviously, okay. So it's it's not cushy or some or you know necessarily an easy smooth ride. But I never talk to someone who's working for a corporate behemoth with a smile on your on their faces, like I'm seeing on yours, and the enthusiasm about the bigger picture, and talking about the other context and you know the future developments and and how we're going to be like. I don't see that, and I and I see that in you, and I see that joy, and I see that. Um, I see that that positive outlook, and it's it's meaningful. Mm. It's meaningful on a, on a on a deep level. It's like mm. I see it in you, and and I really admire that. I really do. Oh well, thank you. I I appreciate that, and and um, yeah, I have become pretty aware that uh, optimism is a coping mechanism for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it 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 is yeah. It's a coping mechanism. Uh, there's a lot of grief in there, um, but I, I really am, yeah, I'm just trying to, to hold on because um, it's just a crazy time. It's a crazy time. And you're early, but not alone. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to be early, but um, tell you what, I had not heard of uh, your edible foodscaping symposium until you told me about it. Um, I didn't know much about edible landscaping being a thing other than, hey, it's pretty cool. Instead of planting a bush that does this, you can plant a bush that feeds you. I mean, of course it makes sense as a gardener, you know, that makes sense to me. But um, it's really cool to talk to someone who has taken that as a business concept and made it into something and you're spreading the word you know, in every single yard. And then when it, and then when that person sells that house, the next person moves in and then they have it, and, you know, so people move into new homes every average of every eight years they move. That's right. So that's, that's multiple families that you're impacting too over the length of that installation. Mm -hmm. It's not just one family. And then it's their kids because you got their kids, right? Yeah. I love that. That's... It happens over time. Yeah. yeah. The ripples. Yes.
They are huge. So how can people follow your work and hire you and support you and invest in your co-op or learn more? Why don't you tell oh. everyone your, 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 your things about your, your, your ventures? Yeah. Um, so yeah, on, on social media, um, Instagram and, and Facebook, Nashville Foodscapes um, and Compost Nashville is on there. Um, got websites, nationalfoodscapes.com. Uh, compostnashville.org um, and you know I, I i i mean obviously if you're in the middle tennessee area give us a shout you know and um, and uh, and i i'll i'll travel further for consultations you know um i i i have done that before and and we'll do it again mm -hmm. uh, but you know i i feel like um I just I, I hope that people hearing this will will be able to take something from this and 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 you know if, if just even feel like hey I'm you know if I'm not growing anything let me go grow something you know um, let me and and I think you know here we are talking about about you know farming and 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 I do think there's so much wisdom in in the plants and the animals you know and I think that so often humans kind of see ourselves as like the top of the hierarchy pyramid. And, and I often like to remember that we're the younger brothers and sisters, you know, and a lot of these plants and animals have been here for a lot longer. And I think they have so much wisdom to share with us if we just take the time to listen. And I'm sure you've experienced this so much with, with your, um, with your farm companions, the animals. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, people haven't read braiding sweetgrass. That's one of my, what, to me, that book can, could, could probably change the world um, if if people read that book and were able to kind of take some of that beauty into the world. So that's something that people braiding, have braiding b r a i d i n g yep. sweetgrass all one word mm -hmm. braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer and um, I think that book has really informed my worldview in a lot of ways um, and and has helped me to kind of um, see the beautiful and see the wisdom and, and the, the more than human, as she puts it. Um, so I recommend that for folks. All right. So as one final word of wisdom, I love those, those other words you just said. So if someone is interested in doing something edible in their yard, what is some low hanging fruit pun intended that you would be able to recommend to people to do? Oh uh, yeah. Well, depends on where you live. Uh, but if you are, you know, uh, I'll say east of the Rockies, <laughs> there's some, you know, crab apples, as we talked about, uh, service berries. Um, those are pretty easy. Um, let's see, mulberries tend to be pretty easy to grow. Um, there's some great dwarf mulberries, depending on your climate. Um, I think herbs, herbs for me are kind of a no brainer. They're just so easy and, uh, and so lovely. And, and then there's so many great um, other herbs out there that are wonderful for tea. And um, I think drinking tea, um, like herbal tea, is such a great way to consume nutrition and plants. Um, uh, Anna's hyssop, uh, stingy nettle, which is also edible, um, tulsi or holy basil, um, uh, mint, you know, uh, I, I think... Uh, Drinking tea is such a wonderful way to get some of those those new some of that nutrition and to get to the essence of the plants. And there, you know, 
some of those plants are so easy to grow, so, so easy to grow. So, uh, and they're going to attract pollinators, you know, and, and if you've never seen um, butterflies or hummingbirds sucking the nectar out of a flower, I mean, it, it will change your life. <laughs> you know? I agree. It does. So, you know, plant flowers, you know, plant flowers like that's, you know, and yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. It has been absolutely wonderful talking with you. This has been a joy. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I wish the best to, to everyone. Get your hands dirty. Get some soil underneath your fingernails, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Get your hands dirty. Get your hands dirty. Smell the soil, you know.